Good morning, my name's Narelle, and I'm going to bring you our reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you have one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 1048, right towards the back. So it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and starting at verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labour among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test all things, hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit soul and body, be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Good morning, Church at Nine. It's great to see you this morning. Um, Okay. Now, kids, you are going to need this sheet in front of you. There will be pictures during the sermon that will match up with these four quadrants, and you need to be drawing them as I go through the passage, and also there is a verse at the bottom um, for you to get as well. How should we read the end of our one Thessal- this letter, 1 Thessalonians? I mean, sh- should we be considering big brotherly wet kisses as we come to church this morning? Pucker up, Ed. Uh, no, not at all. How about I pray that God would help us to understand um, these instructions so that we may live lives that glorify him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you for the gift of your word and the blessing of your spirit. And so as we read your word again more closely, we pray that you would help us to read it, inwardly digest it, and apply your word to our lives so that you may help us as we wait for your son Jesus to return. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So this morning I want to ask the question, how are you going to finish the race called life? How are you going to finish this race? The year is 2017, and I wanted to try a ridiculous thing. That is, ride a charity ride 90 kilometres from Sydney to Wollongong. You see, two months beforehand, I bought my first road bike. Only two months. So I trained like crazy and then embarked on the four- to five-hour ride. The first hour 
was going pretty well. I was riding with friends, we were having a laugh, it was all good fun. Uh, The second hour, okay, I was getting a bit tired, uh, pushing through, soldiering on. The third hour is, um, is there's a hill in Stanwell Park, if you know Sydney very well, very steep hill. That was a struggle, but I, you know, uh, I thought either my gears don't go low enough or I'm not fit enough, but we got through it. And after three and a half hours of riding, I was 10 kilometres from the finish line. And then I hear a... I pulled over and saw that there was a one-inch screw in my rear tyre and I had a flat. The thing is, was that because I was new to this whole riding thing, no one ever told me that I needed to pack spare inner tubes. No one told me that I needed a pump and I didn't even have any idea of how to change a tyre. I thought, well, that's it, I'm finished. Ten kilometres from the end, I'll have to call my wife Mel and get her to pick me up. I was devastated. How am I going to finish this race? So what did I do? Well, I'll tell you at the end. You see, in the Christian life, there is trouble. There is hardship. There is persecution and there is suffering. We will sometimes, more often than we like, ask this question. How am I going to finish the race of life still trusting in Jesus? Because the reality is, walking away from a bike race doesn't have a lot of real consequences. But walking away from Jesus means walking away from the salvation that can only be found in him. If you quit walking with Jesus and waiting for him to return, then you'll have no salvation on Judgment Day and no real hope today as we wait for him. And here is where it gets sad. Because regardless of our age, I have no doubt that you and I know people who have stopped waiting for Jesus. Through the troubles of life or the hardship and the suffering, that they have decided to not finish the race trusting in Jesus and walked away from him. So friends, this morning, how are you going to finish the race Have a look at verse 23 with me. In your Bibles, verse 23, Paul says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. In chapter 4, we've already seen that it is God's will, it's God's desire to sanctify you, to make us holy, And it is God who will keep us sound and blameless at the coming of his son. It is God who will do it. Which means this list of commands in verse 8, sorry, um, in verse 12 to 22, these 18 commands are the means by which God will sanctify his people. It's the means by which God will keep us sound and blameless at the returning of his son. Or put simply, the big idea this morning... God uses his church to sanctify us so that we are kept sound and blameless as we wait for Jesus to return. Today, we finish our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a very young church that has huge potential to grow, huge potential to mature. 
And in chapter 4, we saw that as they wait for Jesus to return, their waiting has become wobbly. They are very uncertain. And so he spends the rest of his letter building confidence in him. Chapter 4, about the certainty of Jesus' return. Chapter 5, he calls them to live in the light. And now he finishes them with how God will ensure them that they are kept holy and blameless. It is through his people, the church. So I've gathered all these 18 commands together, kind of in three groups. We won't look at all of them, but um, the first one is to love our leaders. Now, kids, this is your first picture. So if you've got your quadrant, you need to be drawing this picture. Adults, have a look at verse 12 with me. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labour among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. What's really interesting is that when Paul talks about leaders here, he doesn't talk about a title or a position. Did you notice that? He speaks about what they do and activity. That's because leadership in God's church is not reserved for a position or or, or a title or, or a staff member but it's a calling to be a servant of all people you see whether you're a growth group leader a kids church leader a youth group leader whether you serve up the front on a Sunday leadership in God's church is servant leadership so what does servant leadership look like well verse 12 it's labor Paul uses the language of farming here to say that serving in God's church is back-breaking work. Now, rippling muscles and pouring sweat may not be what you think about when you consider the leaders of our church. It's definitely not me. But if servant leadership is labour, then it's hard going. It involves toil and struggle. Whether it's preparing studies or leading a team or serving on a Sunday or caring for those in need... We should expect that leading will be hard work and that our leaders will grow weary over time. Also, a servant leader, verse 12, is one who is over us in the Lord. That is to say, servant leadership means authority. The language here is one at the head or one who goes first, as the bottom picture there points out. The leader sets the direction and leads God's people. They even care enough for them to, verse 12, admonish them, which means to correct bad behaviour, to encourage them and reprove them. So they hold up the truth of God's word and then they call them to live in light of it. This is not to be done harshly but in love. You see, a loving leader will confront what is wrong and guide others into living a life that honours God. Servant leadership combines both responsibility and authority in equal measure. So what should our attitude be to our leaders? Verse 12, there should be a combination of respect and affection. Verse 13, there should be love. Leaders should be held in high regard, not because of their title or position, but because they're fulfilling God's tasks. You see, to place yourself in a local church is to place yourself under the care and authority of its leaders. And the temptation is for us to hold leaders to our own standards. And so we exalt a leader when they give us what we want, and we despise a leader when they fall short of our expectations. Now, Paul is not saying we get rid of our standards, no. 
There are standards for leadership in the New Testament of character, conviction and competency. But we respect them and we love them because they serve among us. And that will be, that will produce, verse 13, peace. The peace that God has given us in the gospel is to be reflected how we, is to be reflected in the peace and love that we show those who lead us. Lead us. Uh, it reminds me of when I first became a youth leader. One night, when I was 19, I particularly dominated the teenagers at youth group in basketball. You know, a 19-year-old winning against 15-year-olds. That's the kind of thing that's impressive as a leader, right? And I remember the youth group leader later that week catching up with me to chat about my performance on the basketball court. Let me assure you, he wasn't impressed. He didn't congratulate me, no. He admonished me. He rebuked me. He showed me how my behaviour would make it harder for people to participate in youth group and bring their friends. And so while 19-year-old Chris found that a difficult conversation, I'm so glad that he loved me enough to pull me aside and to talk to me about my behaviour because it made youth group a far more encouraging place. And God used it to grow me as a leader so that I would reflect Jesus better. Friends, I hope that all our leaders would be able to have those types of conversations. I hope that all of our leaders would love the people under their care enough at OEC that they could do that. And I hope that we would respond in love when our leaders lead us in that way. You see, how will God keep you holy and blameless as you wait for his son to return? It's by loving your leaders, not exalting them or despising them, but in the midst of disagreements and difficulties, we respect them and we love them. You see, this is not just a job for leaders, but actually it's also something that we all share. So kids, this is your second picture. Point two, building up believers, get drawing. Uh, adults have a look at verse 14 with me and we exhort you brothers and sisters to warn those who are idle comfort the discouraged help the weak be patient with everyone Paul here addresses three groups of people first the idle idleness is such an issue in the church in Thessalonica that he'll Paul will address it again in in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We don't have time to look at it now, but the idol is not those who can't find work. And it's not those who are unfit to work. It's those who choose not to work and therefore are a burden to the church and a burden to others. You see, how do we love the idol among us? Well, it's not what you would naturally think. Verse 14, we're to warn them. That is... Caring for idle people and loving them means challenging them and correcting them. To caution them that their idleness will bring the integrity of the gospel into question. And to warn them that laziness can lead to unholy and godless living. And so we're to warn them of their actions. Second group of people, we're to love the discouraged and the weak. In verse 14, Paul explains that these are the spiritually discouraged and the spiritually weak. Those who are discouraged in their faith, we need to comfort them, support them and help them. 
We offer them lifts to church. We sit with them in church. We show them that they are not alone as they do life. And those who feel weak in the face of their sin, we need to encourage them, to uphold them, to pray for them and remind them of the grace of God, that there is always strength and forgiveness found at the foot of the cross. You see, both the weak and discouraged need to be surrounded by the people of God, reminded by the truths of God, and receive the love of God's people. The third group is everyone. Be patient with everyone. Uh, During the week at Growth Group, we were looking at this passage, and the question came up, Chris, what what does it say, what does everyone mean in the Greek? And you'll be pleased to know that everyone means everyone, all people. Notice it doesn't say be patient with those who are easy to love. It doesn't say be patient with those people that you like. It says be patient with everyone, from the least to the greatest, from the oldest to the youngest. You see, Paul emphasises in this section that the building up of believers is never left for staff or, or leaders of the church, but it is something that we do together with one another. So as the gospel brings us peace with God, it is a peace that we show to those in the family of God. It's a horizontal love that we receive from him that we show, sorry, it's a vertical love that we receive from God that we show horizontally to one another. You see, how will God keep you holy and blameless as you wait for him to return? It is as we serve one another, love one another and build up one another as believers in Jesus Christ. You see, the church is not a service station. If the gospel is at the centre of our lives and the gospel is at the centre of our church, then we cannot reduce the life of our church to a service station. Belonging to our church is more than just an hour on a Sunday. It's more than a sermon that moves me. It's more than conversation that enlightens me. It's more than singing that um, moves me. It's more than a spiritual top-up for the week. It means that church is about serving one another and playing our part in the family of God, even when it's hard to do. To emphasise this, Paul uses the language of family all throughout this passage. Did you notice that? Brothers and sisters is mentioned five times. That is because the responsibility for caring one another is what we do as part of the family of God. Now, I don't know what your family is like. For me, uh, this is hard work considering church to be like my biological family. But have a look afresh at the family of God in the New Testament that God has welcomed you into. That is, God has given you a perfect heavenly father who has shown you his love. God has given you a son who has redeemed us by his great sacrificial love on the cross. And we've been united in Christ by the bond of the spirit. And so God calls us to not just to belong, to not just to turn up to a building on a Sunday, to not just to attend with a group of people, but to be a family of God together. I mean, wouldn't it be tragic this week if someone at church at nine decided to give up following Jesus? If someone walked further and further into sin 
and no one loved them enough to admonish them and bring them back. Or if someone felt so alone and discouraged that they threw in the towel. You see, it would be foolish of us to think that that role to care and love those people is for someone else and not me, not us. And so Paul calls us to love the idle by warning them, to discourage those who are comforted, to strengthen those who are weak, to be patient with everyone so that God may use these efforts to keep us holy and blameless as we wait for Jesus to return. Okay, third one. Kids, third picture, third quadrant, taking in teaching. Adults, have a look at verse 19. Paul says, Don't stifle the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test all things, hold on to what is good, stay away from every kind of evil. One of the questions I think that comes out of this passage naturally as we read it together is verse 19, what does it mean to stifle the spirit? And if you know me, I love mid-sermon questions. So here's a question for you to ask to the person next to you. Turn to the person next to you and ask them, what do you think it means to stifle the spirit? I'll give you a minute. Go. Okay, please go to get the, keep those conversations going over morning tea. I assure you um, that question was in my notes. It wasn't an excuse to have a drink. Um, the, the original language in verses 19 to 21 is actually one long sentence. And so I take it that stifling the spirit, therefore, has to do with not despising prophecies. We don't have time to unpack it, but prophecy in the New Testament is a typing of teaching and exhortation ministry, which means to stifle the spirit is to despise teaching, to not test it, to not hold up, to not hold on to good teaching that is true because we might disagree with it. So the warning here is by despising what is taught, you may resist the work of the spirit in your life because you're rejecting the truth of God's word. You see, our culture teaches us that the greatest truth is my truth. And when we bring that thinking into church, we think all I need is my God, my Bible and me. But when we're challenged by preaching, or if we're challenged by something in growth group, we hear something we don't understand or something we don't agree with or Or even when a brother or sister in love calls us to change the way that we're living in light of God's word, the temptation is to say, well, that's just what you think. That's just what the preacher thinks. That's just what the growth group leader thinks. That's just the words of humans, and it is not the word of God. Now, no preacher or teacher or any Christian stands above the authority of the Bible, no, 
But as sinners saved by grace, we shouldn't expect to agree with everything that we read and everything that we hear in God's word. We should expect that for God to grow us, that he needs to stretch us, to challenge us. We need to come face to face with the capital T truth of God in his word and we shouldn't shy away from it. So when we're challenged by the word of God, by what a preacher says in a sermon or what we're chatting about in growth group, we need our Bibles open, our minds to be engaged, opening our heart to to what could be this truth that God is teaching us. And we test what is taught against scripture. We ask questions, we discuss it in growth group. And as we're convicted by the spirit through his word, God will sanctify us. God, Romans chapter 9, will make us more like his son, conformed to the image of his son. We will be sanctified and kept blameless as we wait for Jesus to return. See, out of this long shopping list of things that uh, Paul is calling us to do is it's sitting under the word of God is the primary means that God will make us more like his son, Jesus and keep us assured and confident that we are his as we wait for him to return. Now, all of this begs a question. If you've been paying attention, you've got a question in your mind. So, this series we've been, Tim Smith has been giving us brief aside. So, if I may, here's a Tim Goldsmith aside. The question is, does this mean I need to be a Christian? Sorry, I need to go to church to be a Christian. Do I need to go to church to be a Christian? The answer, of course, is no. We are forgiven of our sins through faith and repentance, and we are saved by God's grace. On that final day when Jesus returns, he won't get out your church attendance records. Praise God. Uh, he, he won't see of how many times you uh, went to growth group or you, or, or you led on a team or, or how many times you um, helped with morning tea. So we don't need to go to church to be welcomed into God's kingdom. But church is a gift and a privilege that God gives us so that we may grow stronger as people as we wait for him to return. Um, John Stott says this in a book called The Living Church. An unchurched Christian is an anomaly. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the very centre of the eternal purposes of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It's not an accident in history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. You see, we don't need to go to church to be a Christian. But gee, it's hard work being a Christian without church, without God's people. I mean, I understand that people go through seasons of life where they find it difficult to go to church, whether that's because of um, an experience that they've had or a hardship that they're going through. We don't need to go to church to be a Christian, but I don't think we can expect to remain a Christian without God's people, the church. Why? Because God uses his church to sanctify us, to keep us holy and blameless as we wait for Jesus to return. It's right there in verse 23. Have a look at it with me. Verse 23. And this is our final point. Kids, point four, God will do it. Adults, have a look at verse 23. Now may the God 
of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who keeps you faithful, uh, he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. The word sanctified means to make holy. It's a present reality and an ongoing reality for those who trust Jesus. As the gospel calls us to make a response and brings forth faith in our hearts, we repent of our sin and we're made right with God. Romans chapter 4, by the cross of Christ we are made righteous and, by the re- and, we, are de- sorry, and we are declared justified by God. So that when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sinfulness, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus. By the cross of Christ, God makes us holy. And when we come to Jesus, we're given his righteousness, but we don't yet have his maturity. And so God works in us and grows us to mould us more like his son in order that we would walk with Christ. So our position of being in Christ would reflect how we live with Christ so that we would cross that finish line faithful, waiting Um, kept holy and blameless as we wait for Jesus to return. You see, back to my bike race, right? That's the question you all had. Chris, what happened with the bike race? I was 10Ks from the finish line, flat tyre, ready to throw in the towel. How will I finish the race? Well, if I'm honest, I needed to suck up my pride and my humility. I needed other people in that moment to help me so I could cross the finish line. And so I flipped over my bike, I took off the back wheel and I held it off and watched as cyclists rode by. One person saw me and they reached in their back and they threw an inner tube at me. Didn't stop, just threw it, kept riding. Thanks, okay. Need a pump, right? Held out tyre, come, 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 come. Someone rode past, got out a pump, threw the pump at me. Okay, great, got the pump, now I need to put it back on. Uh, And someone was kind enough to stop and actually teach me how to change a tyre. In the end, it was other people who helped me cross the finish line, and I did. I was hoping for a bigger um, response than that. Uh, (laughs) But my point is this, friends. It is through the work of others that I finished the race. You see, how will we finish the race of life? How will we be kept holy and blameless as we wait for Jesus to return? God uses his people, the church. He uses leaders, the building up of other believers, and his word to keep us holy and blameless, which means it requires from us to give up our pride and to take on humility so that we may learn from others, so that we may love our leaders, so we may build up others and learn from his word, so we may be kept holy and blameless as we wait for him to return, so that on that glorious day when Jesus returns and we see him face to face, he may say, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome to my eternal rest. Friends, how are you going to finish the race called life? Let me pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, 
We thank you for the gift of your word and the blessing of your spirit. And this morning in particular, we thank you for the church, not a building or an institution, but a people who are made holy and blameless by your son. And so, Lord, give us the humility to cast off our pride so we may serve one another, loving others, building them up, and sitting under your word together. And so we, we pray that you would also fill us with confidence that you are a God who will surely do it. To the praise of your Son, in his name we pray. Amen.